Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where, with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, we take a deep dive into the weeds of a compliance or compliance-related topic. Before I get to this week's topic, uh, as you know, the Compliance Podcast Network is always on the lookout for new podcasts. Have you ever wanted to start a podcast but didn't know how? Well, if you've thought about it, please take a listen to this week's sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. You're in for a uber treat today because Matt and I take a very deep dive into the KPMG scandal uh, after a week of reading, writing, and reflection. But that's not all because we are joined by Francine McKenna. Francine McKenna is a former partner at a uh, big four law uh, auditing firm. She blogged extensively uh, on her own blog site about Big Four Auditing at NRAE Auditors. And then she moved to MarketWatch, a Wall Street Journal company, where she writes about the audit profession and auditing issues. Francine has written what I think is the most comprehensive article detailing the fines and penalties that KPMG has had over the years and what this current SEC enforcement action may mean going forward. It's a fascinating exploration of one of the most current train wrecks and ethical behavior around. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. And today we have our first Emergency Compliance Into the Weeds podcast. Uh, Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, and myself are joined by Francine McKenna, our good friend uh, who is now at MarketWatch. So Francine, first of all, welcome and thank you for coming on board the podcast today. Thank you. It's an auspicious moment to be here. (laughs) Francine wrote what I think is the best uh, total summary and picture of the KPMG uh, SEC enforcement action this year. So Matt and I thought it'd be great if the three of us just got together and chatted about this. As everyone who's listened to me or read my blog post knows, I'm incredibly offended by this enforcement action. But I think Francine has taken certainly a more journalistic view and a bigger picture. So Francine, I'm going to start by uh, just what are your impressions now after five days after the uh, SEC and season desist orders was released, and you've had time to research, digest, and think about what you read. Well, um, I had a little bit of a hint um, that this was coming because my colleague Dave Michaels at Wall Street Journal put out the article last week, late last week, um, that the fine may be coming. Um, but, um, and I reacted immediately to the fact that, you know, $50 million is sort of, you know, Starbucks money to the KPMG partners, that it was dwarfed by lots of other Uh, enforcement actions against the firms, including against KPMG, uh, in just recent years. Um, But the thing is, is um, no one uh, had any inkling of this additional kind of kicker uh, or sweetener, depending on your point of view, um, of this additional cheating scandal element. And, you know, no one knows how they found or 
why they became aware of this additional extra um, uh, set of violations. Um, and I think it probably is that they were doing whatever investigation they were doing uh, on the PCAOB uh, data theft scandal. And somebody raised their hand and said, wait until you hear this. Yeah. And, you know, it goes back farther than uh, what they admit on the PCAOB scandal uh, pre-2015. And it's pretty much broader and deeper um, than the, the, you know, the range of the PCAOB data theft scandal. So, you know, um, as I quoted you guys in my article, um, I think, you know, there's an argument to be made that this is even worse from a reputational perspective for KPMG. However, you know, they're, you know, they've survived and thrived other things before, and obviously they're surviving and thriving this, uh, despite uh, what we might think. So, Matt, uh, have you had any uh, kind of further thoughts since we chatted and we both blogged on this? Well, Tom, I am more curious about the details of the settlement that they announced, and this is one where I would really welcome your insights and Francine's insights because there's a lot of language I've heard casually that KPMG is going to have a monitor. But when you look at the order, like that's not actually what the settlement specifies. So the word monitor does not appear in the legal consent decree that they signed. Uh, and this is supposedly going to be a consultant who comes in, an independent consultant, and does a review of uh, KPMG's ethics and quality controls, okay, um, and a KPMG is going to appoint its own special board committee to do its own review and then publish its own report and share that with the independent consultant, okay, makes sense, but um, I, I keep thinking like this speaks to a larger troublesome issue about how we do hold accounting firms accountable for ethical missteps like this, uh, because we aren't going to give them a criminal indictment, or we're not even, I don't think, going to sign a deferred prosecution agreement or a non-prosecution agreement that you might see in an FCPA context, where you might have a monitor for two or three years for a fixed term, uh, monitoring, and then if you screw it up, in theory, you could be prosecuted. I know that almost never happens, but nonetheless, that's the theory. Here, we don't have anything like that. It looks to me like we have a consultant who is showing up for a task. In theory, if they did it in six weeks, it would be done. I know that's going to take more than six weeks. Um, but we don't even have a DPA or an NPA. We have this cease or desist order, which also sticks in my craw because the cheating scandal came about from a previous cease and desist order for different misconduct. So now I guess we're on a double cease and desist, which makes no sense. But... It's because we can't threaten a criminal indictment against a big four audit firm because there's only four and we don't have enough of them. Um, so I guess I, I'm torn between talking about what do we think this consultant is going to do and is that going to work? Or if we want to riff on how's the SEC and the Justice Department supposed to handle audit firms and misconduct like this? Because I think in any other sector, we would be talking about criminal indictments much more seriously and we're not going to here. So that, that's my very first thought. And I guess the further thought I've had, I went in, in, in a similar but perhaps a little bit different direction, and I thought about the sanctions against the individuals who may have been involved in the cheating scandal and then the taint 
on people, uh, other uh, KPMG employees. So uh, should a audit partner who either received questions and answers or even worse, lowered the bar so that they could actually pass the exam, should they be barred or suspended uh, for some period of time? Should they be barred from uh, work auditing public company financial statements? Um, and then what about junior employees? Did they simply roll with the punches and say, this is the way uh, things are done here? We can't afford not to pass this exam. Does that speak to a, a personal ethic or personal integrity that would allow them to um, be manipulated really no matter where they went? Uh, so should they be suspended? Should they be tainted? Should there be an asterisk on their uh, home run of home run record of 61? Um, and then what about uh, employees at KPMG who did not engage in cheating and leave the firm either through uh, reduction in force because KPMG takes a business hit or voluntarily because they don't want to be associated with uh, that firm ethos or culture anymore? Will they be viewed with suspicion uh, at uh, going into the marketplace? So I've been uh, really thinking about kind of the individuals not only involved in those, but the fallout and and I think about that in the context of what happened to people in Houston who were working at Enron at the time it imploded. Uh, the people I know were largely not a part of the, uh, directly a part of the scandal yet. Uh, they have many ways paid the price for that literally uh, 18 years later uh, in terms of uh, their career paths. Um, if I may, um, Tom, um, first of all, you know, if you go back to Enron, the Arthur Anderson folks uh, who were professionals at the time that Arthur Anderson imploded as a result of Enron have not suffered at all um, in terms of career. So you had anybody who wanted to continue being a, a certified public account that wasn't directly involved in the prosecutions like Dave Duncan or something, um, went on to some other firm. Um, and frankly, you know, sort of the history is lost. And most of them, you know, will tell you, uh, you know, they were singled out um, uh, the firm was singled out unfairly with regard to Enron and that, you know, otherwise it was a great firm. So, you know, people went on to uh, careers at other firms, um, you know, either as part of a, uh, of a large practice that was purchased by another firm or as individuals who just went on. Um, I do want to sort of make a big distinction between the PCOB scandal um, and the cheating scandal in KPMG in terms of, you know, individual culpability. So when we heard at the trial of um, David Mittendorf uh, a couple of months ago, the partner uh, in charge of audit quality at KPMG that was found guilty um, of conspiracy and wire fraud, et cetera, et cetera, all of the charges that the DOJ brought against him, um, we heard that, you know, there were 47 partners who had exposure, partners who had exposure to the PCAOB list um, data uh, who may or may not have done something to modify their audit work papers as a result, trying to get ahead of their inspections based on this, this, this advanced information. Now, those partners may uh, say, you know, we had no idea, and there was a conscious effort on the part of the small group of, you know, in the know partners um, that were indicted to make sure that they didn't explicitly say that they had the official list uh, in advance. 
And so they may claim plausible deniability that they didn't know that the information was, you know, that the, that the extra review was based on information that they weren't supposed to have. However, the documents, you know, the, the actual SEC complaint and the DOJ complaint implied that there were some scenarios where partners were very aware and it was sort of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge in terms of, you know, why they were going uh, and doing these additional reviews after the audit opinions had been issued. So there's an opportunity for some of them to say, you know, I didn't know, I was told to do, you know, this extra review. I didn't know it was based on this stolen information. However, when you start talking about taking uh, uh, exams uh, for, you know, compliance-related issues, ethics issues, additional accounting, uh, technical standard issues, uh, in particular, if it was um, oriented around uh, the, re you know, the response to this enforcement action, it was remedial uh, based on uh, this enforcement action. If people shared the answers and also, you know, jimmied the, the results of the test, tests, I mean, that's conscious, that's scienter, that's a very, very intentional uh, desire to not in this case, uh, you know, disregard the PCOB, which everybody loves to hate, but to actually disregard an enforcement action from the SEC. I mean, to actually say, you know, we're going to, you know, just sort of get around this, you know, uh, you know, silly regulator that's giving us a hard time. And I think, you know, I have to start agreeing with Matt, who commented in my piece, you know, Maybe this is a lot worse. Maybe it's really gotten really bad at the firms in terms of their disregard for the regulatory uh, oversight. You know, Francine, I think I, I just want to follow up on a point you made earlier about the PCAOB insider intel scandal um, and about culpability there. Like, my issue is that all of this came to light because a partner at KPMG who was getting this inside intel she did think, this is weird. This seems amiss. And she reported it to, piece, to the KPMG's internal hotline, and they self-reported and all of this. So when there are 47 partners involved, at least one of them did have enough horse sense to say, this does not pass the smell test. I should report it. So the other 46 didn't. And that is hard to believe. And even if it is plausible that they are not criminally culpable, and maybe that is the case. Uh, I still question the, you know, their professional liability and conduct and whether there would be any sort of civil charges or looking at suspension of your CPA license or something like that. Um, I don't know exactly how much of a lower threshold there would be, but somebody somewhere at the firm did have enough sense to say, this feels weird, so it's probably weird, let me report it, which is what you are supposed to do. And all the ethics and compliance people listening, we should be nodding our heads in affirmation here. And 46 others didn't do it. So what does that say about the firm? That's another big question I have. So if I could just uh, follow uh, those points by asking, in terms of uh, culture, in terms of integrity, how does uh, uh, KPMG begin to turn this around? I've thought about this in the context of FCPA enforcement actions, and there you may have certainly have egregious conduct, um, but it's usually limited to uh, 
a distinct group, whether that group be a foreign business unit, whether that group be part of uh, the bribery scheme in the corporate office, uh, but there's a distinct group of people. And it's not so much that it's easy to ring fence, but it's easier to bring resources to bear to not only remediate the situation or the instance, but also try to bring additional training and, and change the culture, whether it's through incentives, whether it's through terminations, whether it's through a wide variety of incentives and disciplines. But this uh, seems to me to be more along the lines of Wells Fargo, where although Wells Fargo has put structural changes in place, they still appear to be having ethics-based and integrity-based scandals. And so how does a company begin to change its entire ethos? And as uh, I believe you alluded to, Francine, is this broader within the uh, industry uh, because of the disregard for the regulators uh, for whatever reason? Is this something that other companies may be faced with? But uh, even if we stick with KPMG, how does one begin to actually change a culture where no one uh, reported the cheating scandal. And I thought it really instructive that the SEC specifically noted that no one uh, called the ethics hotline around that. Well, um, you know, uh, Tom, you and Matt know that I go out and speak to masters of accounting programs at all the universities quite often. I probably, uh, you know, each year speak to at least six or seven uh, that either come to Washington, D.C., or that I go out to the school. So places like Texas A&M, Ohio State, uh, Marquette, Baylor, uh, where I was recently teaching an extended course um, to some students from the Masters of Accounting program. And the students themselves, uh, when I talk to them about uh, a more fundamental violation, backdating. So if a partner asks you to backdate work papers, something that has been, uh, uh, you know, the subject of enforcement actions at the PCOB and the SEC uh, quite a bit over the last 10, 12 years. There have been quite a few, and they've gone down to the lower uh, uh, staff levels, okay? So not just partners, but everybody who did it um, was held accountable in those cases. The staff, uh, you know, these students um, who are about to enter the big four firms uh, number one, uh, in general, are not aware of these uh, enforcement actions other than uh, for the fact that I speak about them. So the firms, when they come on recruiting visits, never talk about it. And uh, except for a few professors, the ones who obviously are aligned with my concerns, uh, they've invited me to speak and they're trying to talk to their classes about it, may have mentioned it, but it doesn't stick with the students. And certainly the firms don't mention it and talk about what to do if someone puts pressure on you to do something that violates uh, ethical or professional standards. So I was very troubled too, Tom, about um, the mention in the uh, enforcement action that no one had um, had uh, reported this test cheating scandal to the hotline ever, and that they just happened upon this information in the course of something else. I think that there's an enormous amount of additional effort that all of the big four firms and all of the firms that report on public company or that audit public companies need to do to strengthen that internal uh, reporting and hotline mechanism, you know, whether it's taking it outside to third parties, whether it's re-educating the students, whether it's speaking about this on campus, um, if only to try to preempt 
uh, another reputational nightmare uh, like this. So there is an enormous amount of reluctance on the part of um, especially young people to do anything to jeopardize their job or their career, and they just don't know what to do if someone puts this pressure on them. Um, and there are very few people that are available to them that are not in a position of judgment or who could be a threat to their career um, uh, who are willing to help them. So, Tom, here's an interesting point. Since you said, how might KPMG start to turn around the ship? Um, we had said earlier they have this independent consultant who is going to come along. Uh, they're going to review many different things, among which, and I'm going to quote directly from the SEC settlement order here, whether KPMG deploys proper resources and oversight for compliance with ethics and integrity requirements, including the seniority of executives and managers responsible for implementing an oversight of these responsibilities. So that begs the question, does KPMG have anything like a real or functioning ethics and chief ethics and compliance officer? Now, I looked it up, and it's going to get a little bit awkward, but we might as well name some names here. Um, KPMG's chief compliance officer is Thomas DeLeonardo, who I do not know. Um, and then they also have a woman, Victoria Sweeney, who is the principal in charge of ethics and compliance for the firm, uh, who was actually on the board at the Ethics and Compliance Association from 2011 to 2017. So clearly KPMG is you know, creating the right structures to nominally have somebody or some buddies to oversee this. But I suppose it raises the question of, do these people have enough influence? Um, should their positions be elevated? Do we need different people in those roles? Do we need additional roles? Um, I don't know, but you know, we often talk in the corporate compliance world outside of audit firms about uh, chief ethics and compliance officer who has C-level responsibility, uh, reports either directly to the CEO or ideally straight into the audit committee or somebody like that of the board. Um, I'm wondering how that would work at an audit firm. And this is actually one point where I'd, I'd welcome Francine's perspective, uh, since you've been in the audit world much more than Tom or I. Like the overall structure of an audit firm is very different than a corporation, and they are more sprawling and independent and fiefdoms. And I, like, I don't quite know what an effective ethics and compliance function would look like for something as big and sprawling as a big four firm but I don't think it would look quite like what we usually think of in the corporate world. So that's another question I have. Well, um, I, can, I can say that um, based on my experience in PwC, um, and as you guys know, I'm both a KPMG and PwC alum, um, but my most recent experience um, <laughs> is with PwC in 2005 and 2006, where I was uh, in the team that did internal audit of the firm itself. And our responsibility was to look at these structures, uh, exactly what you're talking about, um, whether it was independence, whether it was risk and quality, whether it was um, uh, ethics um, or um, uh, other, you know, uh, other kinds of administrative and uh, operating the business kind of issues that we anticipated the PCOB was gonna come in and look at in terms of the overall audit quality framework. And the idea was that we were looking at, do those structures, um, you know, are they staffed? Are they operating according to a proper methodology? Do they have the right oomph inside the firm? 
uh, in order to respond to what the PCAOB was going to be expecting when they came in to inspect. And, and ethics and quality is all about, um, you know, the training, um, the standards, and again, the hotline. And so PwC had a hotline um, that you were supposed to be able to call. It was manned by people within the headquarters in, um, at that time in Jersey City. Uh, I think now it's in Florham Park. And you had an independent group of people who were part of the administrative structure of the firm, um, mostly uh, near retirement partners uh, or, you know, uh, people who had, you know, were elder states people within the firm who had been around the block and done lots of different things in the firm. And so they were, I think, um, the kind of people who had the experience. Um, the question was whether or not, you know, any of the firms continue to have an emphasis on this and whether or not it, it's not impacted by the politics of the firms in terms of partners that want to go back into uh, the practices or want to retire with uh, all honors. Um, I mean, those are the politics of the firms that anyone um, deals with when they start pointing out uh, um, negative things. Um, it's one of the reasons why, you know, I'm a journalist <laughs> instead of still working at PwC. So I would like to maybe take things in a little bit different direction because this question has been on my mind for some time. And this uh, scandal, uh, current scandal we're talking about with KPMG really crystallized my thinking is uh, we've all three of us separately and together talked about what's an appropriate level of fine or penalty uh, against KPMG. And one of the things I'm concerned about, or at least to throw out for discussion is what happens if we break up KPMG? Uh, obviously, Francine alluded to the breakup of Arthur Anderson and the partners uh, and employees who have gone on to a variety of different firms, uh, companies, and businesses since that time. But uh, KPMG is now uh, embroiled in a scandal in South Africa. They're embroiled in a scandal in the United Kingdom uh, and, and perhaps some other places. And if there is a move by any of those regulators to break up KPMG uh, and we get to a th a, th a big three. Uh, what are the implications? Is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? And I, I really have still have not come to any conclusion, but would really throw that out uh, maybe to you for you to start, Francie. Um, well, I've written about this issue quite a, quite a bit. There's been academic research, and then there's also um, quite a bit of work being done uh, by uh, Jim Peterson, who's written books and also tried to make the calculation of what kind of penalty or litigation settlement would be sort of the tipping point for firms. And, you know, that's a constantly changing um, number uh, because the firms get bigger and bigger each year, the, the largest four global firms. Uh, but also because in the U.S. we have no visibility into their actual financial um, situation. Um, they do not publish um, audited financial statements. Uh, their financial statements are not prepared according to GAAP. Um, and there's really no way that we can know, um, you know, to what extent they have been reserving for these kinds of uh, issues and whether they can, you know, withstand the kinds of um, uh, litigation and other government penalty uh, actions that, that they've taken. What we do know is that when the KPMG situation occurred, um, when they uh, actually uh, filed the criminal and the civil charges in early 2018, that the SEC was very, very, very conscious. Uh, Chairman Clayton was very uh, adamant 
um, that no one should take any of this uh, as uh, any reason to lose confidence in KPMG, the firm, or to have any concerns about their audits of public companies. There's a very active conscious effort to make sure that whatever the government does uh, here and in particular in the UK, um, that whatever the government does, it does not jeopardize investors' um, confidence in the firms in the public markets. They do not want um, some kind of a, a panic that would cause uh, a, a number of issuers to uh, suddenly shift and leave one of the firms bereft uh, of enough business to support it. Um, because we cannot, um, based on my uh, analysis and many others, uh, including academics, um, we cannot um, withstand one of the large four um, going, uh, dis dissolving. Uh, the three that remain do not have um, the, uh, the wherewithal, the heft, the ability to absorb um, the business and the liability that would inevitably be associated with any firm that would collapse, um, or the people or any of the responsibility for public company audits um, that we had when Arthur Anderson um, dissolved. We do not have that anymore. They've all grown, big, grown bigger. Things have grown, grown more complex. And so we are not in the same situation. And there is not um, uh, either a contingency plan for if that should occur. So we, they are by all means possible propping up the remaining four and making sure that at least the government doesn't do anything to cause their demise. You know, Francine, I just want to jump in. I think it's important to note that when Chairman Clayton at the SEC stood up and said people should not have any concerns about the reliability of KPMG, he said that after the PCAOB scandal broke, he did not say, or at that time that he said it, we had no idea about the cheating scandal. And I don't know, but I suspect that the SEC didn't know the cheating scandal was coming either when he stood up and said that, like, what, 15 months ago or something to that effect. That's, that's true. But when I asked the question on the media call, and it's in my article, I asked the question on the media call whether the SEC was looking again at uh, any concerns about audits and issuers. Uh, financial statements, given what they know now about not only the PCOB scandal, but also this cheating scandal, which went directly to, as you said, responding to an enforcement action uh, related to um, um, violations of auditing standards. Okay, so they were, they had recommended, required remediation of people's training and knowledge, uh, proving their knowledge of actual auditing standards and accounting standards. And so the fact that they cheated should should cast out, but the SEC officials on our on the media call said um, we're not prepared to talk about any ongoing investigations mm -hmm. or any uh, additional investigations. And we would we would direct you to look back at what Chairman Clayton said uh, in early 2018 about um, our confidence in the audits and the issuer financial statements. So they said basically no news on that front. And, you know, that may well be the case that the audits themselves are reliable, but still then, like, if I were a CFO at a KPMG client, um, I would probably be on the phone with the firm saying, now, wait a minute, is anybody who I'm paying you for at 600 or 800 or whatever my billable rate is, 
am I paying for somebody who cheated their way through a CPE exam and I had a bunch of dopes on my account and nobody knew about it? Um, because that does sound to me like I'd be mighty upset that is this some sort of theft of honest services or something like that. Um, I don't think that would result necessarily in litigation, although if I were the CFO, I would hold KPMG over an open flame until they gave way on some of their fees for next year. But like, none of this is good for a productive relationship between the audit firm and its client, which is important that those relationships at least work. I know they're supposed to be adversarial, but they also have to be productive. And this doesn't bring us anywhere but further away from that sort of ideal. Um, and Tom, to your point about will this ever lead to the breakup of a big four firm? So um, no, I mean, we're not going to dissolve the firm. We're not going to break up the firm. I could imagine in a different political regime in Washington, say it is January 2021 and there is a President Elizabeth Warren in charge, which is not far-fetched, but it might happen, who knows. I could see Democrats maybe thinking about more ways to regulate what audit firms do. Uh, perhaps have them be more transparent in their finances or something like that. Right now they are very opaque in what they, how they operate but they wield enormous influence and it's a huge industry and we don't get much sense into what's actually going on there. So I could see more regulation of the firms or new types of disclosure or um, disclosures or transparency around the big four, but are we going to break them up? No. Are we going to indict one? No. Um, should we? That's a different story, but we're not going to. So that's that. So I wanted to uh, maybe end up with uh, some final thoughts or anything that uh, was on your mind we didn't get to today. Uh, Matt, uh, can I switch back to you and ask you to start us off on this final round? Well, yeah, sure. I still am thinking more about what happens next with KPMG and this ethics and compliance review that the firm will take and an independent consultant um, who will come in and then do their own review and the review of the firm's review and report back to the CE, uh, to the SEC about this. Uh, how is any of this going to work? Uh, literally down to the mundane question of who's actually going to get this consultant gig? Because um, it's not going to be easy. I don't know that you could be a lawyer. I don't know that there are ex-auditors. Um, if there are ex-regulators, they might be conflicted out. Uh, like an ex-PCAOB member might be a plausible candidate except most of the PCAOB board members who just left were, you know, this happened on their watch. Um, so how is all of that going to happen? And how will KPMG try to rectify the ethical culture given its large and complex organizational structure? Which for ethics and compliance officers, whether you're in audit firms or in corporate America or any other big organization, it's just, it's interesting to watch. Like, how are they gonna do that because if they could do it well, I certainly, you know, watch them and beg, borrow, and steal what they do. But I, I don't know how this is going to get done. So that, that's what's on my mind. Francine? Well, um, I'll say this. Uh, as a former managing director of KPMG Consulting and Bearing Point, it's, it's consulting spinoff, um, I'd be willing to do the job. And what I, would do, what I would do on day one is probably kick some tails and kick some people out and clean up. Uh, I know some very good people that are still at KPMG that I trust. Uh, and I know some people have probably uh, gone down the wrong path, obviously. Um, but, you know, I, I'm also concerned about uh, what's going to happen next. And uh, when I was uh, noodling over this, uh, you know, uh, the original sort of 
um, scoop that my colleague got on that this was coming over the weekend, um, I was thinking about the fact that maybe the sentencing was coming, um, the sentencing for the partners who had been found guilty or who had pled guilty already. Maybe they were in a rush because the sentencing was coming. Um, well, are they going to sentence them to jail time or are they going to sentence them, you know, lightly? And so was this a reaction of the SEC to try to say we're doing something, uh, even though it, it's it's really not a very severe financial or other penalty? However, when you add in now that there's this cheating scandal, um, now you realize this is why they had to do it quickly, because this is so large and so widespread that it was probably about to blow the lid off and they had to get this out there quickly before everybody found out. So then you say, what's going to happen next? And I think nothing's going to happen next because KPMG is the audit firm in charge of the audit at the Fed. It's the audit firm in charge of the audit at the Treasury Department. It's the auditor in charge of the audit at the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, which is a very problematic situation. And so the federal government is in the business of maintaining stability, and they're not going to, uh, as they said in the order, debar uh, KPMG from doing any kind of federal work. They did not do that when they were um, uh, put under the uh, deferred prosecution agreement for the tax fraud um, of a, you know, with a much higher penalty. So they're not interested in preventing KPMG and the rest of the firm, who they assume are good, from doing the work of um, the federal government. And so nothing will happen unless there's some other kind of outside, uh, in, you know, uh, 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 private litigation like PwC has faced recently that sort of raises questions about financial viability or raises questions about, you know, the overall integrity of the firm. And... Uh, people, you know, walk with their feet uh, to another firm. Um, one last comment, you know, there's the GE audit, which everybody is, you know, talking about whether KPMG is going to lose the GE audit, one of the most lucrative audits, uh, you know, uh, of all in the public company uh, uh, realm. And the problem is, is that even though KPMG has been GE's auditor for over 100 years, the other three firms are, are involved in lucrative consulting work. Uh, and tax work at GE, and really probably don't want the audit. So my prediction is that they'll turn around and say they gave it a shot, they put it out for tender, and they've made a decision that KPMG is not going to lose the GE audit because any of the other three firms would have to give up lucrative consulting work, and I don't see that happening. So this is the situation that we're in. And it's going to take a much, much, much more dramatic effort on the part of regulators to look for a contingency plan, look for a completely different restructuring, uh, something beyond what they're considering in the UK, which I think is Band-Aid, uh, in order to resolve uh, the issues that we have. So the thing that I've been thinking about is how can a uh, commercial organization, uh, business, uh, you name the industry, but a non-accounting firm, non-financial services firm, use the KPMG enforcement action as basically a teaching teachable moment. And uh, in the wall, uh, the Wells Fargo um, original fraudulent account scandal, we had a perverse incentive 
financial incentives, which led to the creation of the uh, fraudulent accounts. And I thought that was a, a certainly a good example that companies could use to not only test their own uh, financial incentive schemes, but also to talk about to employees uh, what happens uh, if you're put under such pressure that you have to lie, cheat, and steal simply to make your numbers on a daily basis. Here, the scandal is, is a little bit different because there was not a direct financial incentive, but there certainly was an incentive within the organization for everyone to pass the examination so that they could continue to perform work for the company. But I thought, um, and I would have to say analogizing to my time in the law firms, if you were known to have failed the bar exam or if you were known to have failed a test or certification, um, that was a greater uh, incentive uh, than financial incentive. So they pointed out in the uh, SEC order that the partners, the people who fail the examination, uh, they w- uh, there would be a notification within the firm, and if they failed it three times, uh, then they were subject to possible financial sanctions. So uh, it gives uh, commercial companies an opportunity to take a look at non-financial incentives within their organization and also use it as a very teachable moment. In addition to the cheating portion, uh, I have to go back to the uh, specific call out by the SEC that no one reported the cheating scandal to the ethics hotline and that the, you should use this case to really emphasize your hotline, uh, that they expect people to speak up, and even more if not only if it happens to you, but if you see something, say something, if you see something happening to someone else. So uh, I'm hoping that uh, com- compliance professionals in commercial corporations or other organizations that are not accounting firms can use some of the facts of this case uh, as lessons learned going forward. So, uh, Francine, thank you so much for coming on with us. This has just been a ton of fun. Uh, we're way too over. We're way overdue in asking you to come on, and I hope we can do it again. Absolutely. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this special episode of Compliance Into the Weeds, where Matt and I were joined by Francine McKenna to take a really deep dive into the KPMG scandal. I'm going to link to everyone's articles in the show notes. Matt and I have uh, both blogged on it. Francine has written on it, and uh, Matt and I had a prior podcast on it. So check out uh, the additional writings if you'd like some more information. Also, I did another podcast with Sam Silverstein, on this topic that we'll post next month on his uh, angle from accountability. Compliance Into the Weeds is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.